Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Earlier this morning, I awoke to the news that the federal government have at long last released uh, an arts and entertainment stimulus package, $250 million to support arts organisations and artists around Australia. Joining us on the line to break this down a little bit for us is Nicole Bayer, the Executive Director of Theatre Network Australia. Nicole, is this good news? Yes, it's great news. Yes, it's fabulous news, finally. It's taken quite a while. I mean, uh, it's been over 100 days since the Labor Party called on the government to deliver a support package. And I know uh, months ago, uh, organisations like Live Performance Australia, Theatre Network Australia, NAVA and others were calling for a multi-million dollar support package. Why do you think it's taken so long for the government to act on this? Yes, look, you're right. Over the, you know, three months of the COVID shutdowns, I think the whole art sector has been making it really clear how badly hurt this industry has been um, in lots of ways. So, you know, I, I think as a sector we've done a really good job and individual artists are also coming out saying how badly hit they've been, that they lost gigs immediately, you know, companies saying they won't be able to reopen um, for a long time. Um, but, you know, this is a an, an extraordinary time for the whole world, right? So it's going to take a long time for... Um, everyone to get their every, all the details across. I think it's just one of those things. Um, it, you know, if you look at it in, in the big picture, for a government in a recession to give $250 million to arts and culture is an achievement. It's certainly an achievement, and it certainly, uh, to me, speaks to the success of the lobbying that's been happening across the sector from all the different peak bodies and organisations, and I suspect letter-writing campaigns and emails and phone calls from individual artists to their local federal members, for example, right. as well. Now, as I said, this is a $250 million federal government package to support the sector. Uh, have you had much of a chance to kind of read over it? Do you have a, a sense of the different streams or packages that this funding will be broken up into? Look, just what's out there, but, you know, in summary, there's um, uh, $75 million in grants for production and event businesses to put on new festivals and concerts and things. Um, so that's sort of a seeding package, if you like. Um, then there are what's called show starter loans of $90 million. Um, so they're loans, so like a, a guarantee against loss. Um, then there's $50 million in grants for the screen sector, because as we know, that's been badly hit as well. And then there's $35 million, um, and this is where, you know, my sector, the small to medium and independent sector, um, will be benefiting. Um, $35 million that'll be spent on direct grants to Commonwealth-funded arts and culture orgs, and that's through the Australia Council for the Arts. They'll be working with the Australia Council for the Arts. Now, we don't have detail on how that will be spent yet, um, and a spokesperson from the Australia Council this morning said that they don't have that detail yet. They'll have to be working on that. But what I do know is that it will benefit the performing arts, um, which is my sector, and as we know, the performing arts um, are the, you know, is the worst, worst hit sector having to close all those theatres immediately and will be the last to open as well. But, Richard, what I think is fantastic is this task force. So there's a Creative Economies Task Force that's been set up. So what that indicates is that there is a 
there is obviously now a you know an, an understanding that this is going to take a long time for our sector to come back um, to, to what it, or to something like it was before, and so there's a task force that includes the Australia Council that will work on this going forward. So there is an opportunity for us to to look at the areas of continued need um, and um, and you know and work on this job maker plan for the creative industries that the government has indicated as well. And certainly given uh, a recent conversation I had with uh, Evelyn Richardson from Live Performance Australia, one of the other peak bodies uh, in the sector, uh, talking about the need for a two-year plan for the sector to emerge from the, the impact and the shutdown of COVID-19. That task force, as you say, will then presumably be kind of advocating for and pushing for this to be more than just uh, a one-off short-term package, that it really needs to be the first step in ongoing right. support. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, the money's great, but the news about the task force is actually indicates this ongoing willingness to, to work with our industry. Now, one of the concerns I've already seen raised about this $250 million package is that, yes, it will be beneficial for uh, already funded organisations such as the theatre, the major theatre companies around the country and some of the, the smaller uh, second-tier companies like uh, Griffin and so forth up in Sydney. Um, what, do you, what do you think it will mean for individual artists because some of the people the in his media statement the prime minister has already flagged that this is designed to support for example uh the the set builders who are working with theater yeah. companies for example so the the many people associated not just the the front end on stage but the people who work behind the scenes do you think uh what will it mean for independent theater makers for example have you any idea there because i know there's a loans program associated with this and i've already seen some artists expressing concern that the last thing they want is to get into more debt in a time of national recession. I think the loans program is for organisations. Look, you're right. I mean, independent artists have missed out along the way. JobKeeper was fantastic. 26,000 people in the arts have been able to access JobKeeper. But there are a whole, there are a whole swathe, thousands of people who weren't able to access it. And, and it's because they, their income is um, quite a mixed bag of income. They might have casual work as well as contract work, um, and therefore they're not, they're not casuals. They might only have a six-month casual job, therefore they can't access it through a company, and they have contract work as a sole trader but not enough to, to reach the threshold that they need as a sole trader. And that's a lot of independent artists who, who really are micro-arts businesses. Um, so, yeah, that work still needs to be done on, you know, either changes to JobKeeper or, as I said, you know, to, 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 for this new job maker program to address those, those problems and, and for it to be extended because what we don't want is for the people on JobKeeper to all of a sudden fall off in, in September. That's going to happen as well. Um, and the detail of the, the $35 million that will be through that will be administered through the Australia Council isn't out yet, and that may include companies that are not funded by the Australia Council. It doesn't say that they're not, so that could be you know tiny organisations um, through through grants programs at the Australia Council. And um, so we'll keep advocating for that. Great, and it would certainly be wonderful to see that thirty five million dollars kind of, uh, become a permanent increase to the Australia Council's budget. We all know that the Australia Council's uh, budget has been kind of reduced uh, over several years. So uh, I'm, I know I'm. Uh, 
possibly unrealistically optimistic, but 35 million in direct financial assistance for Commonwealth-funded arts orgs through the Australia Council is great. Uh, to see that ongoing would be even better. I'm also intrigued to see the detail of obviously the $250 million package overall, but in particular the $75 million of funding to help production and event businesses put on new festivals, concerts, tours and events. So that means I would imagine that uh, the uh, kind of the live music sector in terms of uh, major tours uh, and presumably the commercial theatre sector as well. So productions uh, that have been on hold like Come From Away may now get the chance to apply for that funding anywhere between 75000 and $2 million. Uh, yep. to support kind of restaging work and moving it into different capital cities. Yes. Yep. All that sounds great. Look, you know, the de as you say, it's all going to be, you know, the detail of how that rolls out. And not everyone in the arts is going to be able to access, you know, a, a piece of this of this $250 million. Um, but, you know, we, we, need, we need for the sector to, as a whole um, to be sustainable, right? And so, you know, this will go a long way. It certainly will, and it's certainly uh, very, very welcome news to wake up to this morning, I have to say. Having had the government promising for a few weeks they would be announcing something soon, to wake up to learn that the federal government, uh, the Prime Minister and the, Fed the Arts Minister have announced a $250 million support package for the arts structured across the four streams. Certainly good news. I don't know what time you got the news, uh, Nicole, but I imagine that you must have been delighted to get it as well. Early this morning, it was out late last night, but I was already asleep in bed. <laughs> <laughs> so was I. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. yes, I, that's what I, I woke up to a couple of text messages so, uh, and a couple yeah. of emails. It was great. Nicole yeah, Bayer okay. is the Executive Director of Theatre Network Australia. Nicole, thanks for joining us on this morning to talk to us about this issue, particularly at such short notice. Uh, you're welcome, Richard. Thanks very much. Triple R. If you've been consuming art over the last couple of months with everybody in lockdown, you'll have been noticing that a lot of organisations, with a couple of notable exceptions, such as the Malthouse Theatre uh, and their lockdown monologues, most organisations have been pushing out older video, older works recorded earlier in the year. And while it's been great to re-watch some of those, you may have had a hankering for new works which are talking exactly about the experiences we're all sharing at the moment, the nervousness, the isolation, uh, the hope for the future, which is why I'm very excited to uh, chat with my next guest. David Bertolt is the Interim Executive Chair of Playwriting Australia, uh, and they've commissioned a series of postcards from 50 playwrights across Australia. Dear Australia is the name of the project. David how significant is it to be commissioning 50 playwrights? Um, do you know, it's gone remarkably smoothly. Uh, we didn't choose the, the writers at all at Playwriting Australia. We, we identified 25 small to medium organisations from right across Australia uh, doing all kinds of work and said to each of them, OK, choose two playwrights. And the, the, the list of 50 playwrights that that, that process came up with is in itself the most extraordinary snapshot of the diversity of voices going on in this country at the moment. A real revelation. It's certainly kind of a, a really kind of fascinating and remarkable list of people. And I, as you say, the fact that kind of a range of small companies around Australia put them forward. So rather than this being you and a panel who might perhaps kind of whether consciously or unconsciously gravitate to those playwrights you already know and respect, the fact that we've got people like 
Morgan Rose, Ross Mueller, Eric Gardner, Marianne Butler, uh, Tasman Hussain, Catherine Ash, uh, Nathan Maynard, Future D. Fidel, Richard Franklin, Liv Satchel. It's a really diverse and really intriguing list of people. And to commission 50 playwrights to create new work is significant in itself. Even more significant is the fact that these are very... They're, they're snapshots of the here and now. They're very much... Instead of the, the usual development pathway for a play, which might take two, three, four, five years or more before it gets to the stage, these are kind of very fresh and very of the moment. Yeah, that's what struck me when, the, when these monologues started to come in. And they're anywhere between about two and six minutes long. And... Um, it struck me that the stories are so individual. Sometimes they're, they're you know, stories of remote communities. They're stories of children, um, of the elderly, of international students, of you know, people who are just sitting at a home, of family story. Just any kind of story you can imagine, and some that you can't because they're genuine. You know, one of them, the, the, the virus, is personified and does a stand-up comic routine. <laughs> um, and, you know, so some of them are quite fantastical um, as well. Uh, and when they started to come through, I, I was thrilled because, as you say, Richard, it, it's in no way a list of playwrights I could ever have come up with sitting down with a panel. And that's what excited me so much about when all, when all the names came through. There were many names that I didn't know, to be honest. And now I, I know them, and I feel, I feel as though I've learned something about the playwriting culture in Australia. Uh, and then the actors, of course. You know, we, we ask the, act, the, the playwright to choose actors, and then we engage the actors on their behalf, and the actors recorded these monologues, you know, on, on their own, essentially. And when the videos started coming in, I saw that the actors were being just as creative in how they um, performed the monologues. Now, the, um, the actors who have been selected, and I love the fact that playwrights have said, "These are the, this is the person I want to I want to work with." So, Liv yeah. Satchel here in Melbourne has uh, nominated Belinda uh, uh, McClory, for example, who she's worked with in the past. Um, Richard Franklin has um, is has, uh, his piece has been performed by Jack Thompson, legend of Australian screen. So, yeah. kind of, it's kind of so many kind of kind of really uh, uh, Pacharo uh, Mazembe, who people may have seen performing in a touring production, which I believe premiered at one of your Brisbane festivals. It did, yeah, yeah, a few Prize years ago. Fighter, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So again, kind of this diversity of faces and voices bringing to life these kind of diverse stories. It's a, a, a really fantastic celebration of Australia now, but also of Australia looking forward. Would it be fair to say that in for many, or at least some of these pieces, there's a sense of hope about what we, the, the sense of community that's been engendered through this process, the, the sense of hope that if we can work together to try to defeat a virus, perhaps we can work together to defeat climate change? There is, actually. There's a lot of hope in it. And uh, when the... the when we commissioned the writers, I, I just gave a, a bunch of, you know, provocations as questions like, what is happening now? What, what are we seeing? What are we learning about us as a nation? Uh, what, do we, what do we want our society to be? You know, just kind of really general questions like that, which I think stimulated a lot of the, a lot of the stories. But some of it is very future-focused and, and, and is very much about hope. So it, it, it strikes me that in these last three months, uh, we're ready to address all sorts of things, whatever they might be, because all the things that seemed insurmountable three months ago 
um, now seem as though, you know, just systems or things which we always thought were too difficult to change, it's clear now that we can change them. You know, just even 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 working from home, you know, we've all learned that it's actually much more possible than we ever thought it was. Um, you know, we're always afraid that people, you know, wouldn't wouldn't actually work at home. <laughs> you know, but clearly that's wrong. Um, clearly that fear is wrong. Or, or notions such as the universal basic income, or people who fall through the cracks, and you know, the level of um, you know job seeker or the doll, you know, we're questioning what the level of that is in our society. Or all manner, you know, uh, digital medicine, you know, like clearly that's been revolutionized in the last few months where we realize there are more efficient ways to provide health care. And so, or, you know, the list and list and list of things that goes on. And so uh, all sorts of things can be questions. And I think actually there's a profound connection between that and this latest wave of Black Lives Matter and all that's thrown up. But, you know, there's a great deal of hope that this time some really substantive change will come out of that because we understand that all things are capable of change and are not necessarily impossible. Now, when the plays are being broadcast, and this, so we're talking about a series of 50 short monologues being screened across uh, a series of nights, Thursday the 2nd of July, Friday the 3rd of July, and Sunday the 5th of July. Um, I think referencing uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, it's kind of the fact that the very first play is by Indigenous playwright Nakia Louie, performed by Miranda Tapsell. That in itself is an important opening statement to make as well. Yeah, it was. And, and, and Nakia's piece, I really adore the piece that Nakia's written, and, and Miranda has performed it just beautifully, i got to say. And uh, and it felt... And the, the things that Nakia writes about, I thought, was a really great way to start. And it was interesting kind of grouping them all. You know, there are 15, 16, 17 monologues on each of the three nights. We grouped them thematically and, you know, to kind of give them a bit of you know, a coherent kind of run, as it were. Um, and that was interesting in itself, putting thing, monologues together that were a little bit similar or riffed off the same themes or sometimes contradicted each other even. Um, so that's, that's, been really, that's been a really fascinating exercise. And, and also, I think, the way that organisations around the country have come together, it's not just that 25 organisations, but also Arts Centre in Melbourne, Sydney Opera House, Queensland Performing Arts Centre, Darwin Entertainment Centre, Perth, and, like lots of people kind of coming together to um, enable it to happen. It's a lovely example of that overused arts industry phrase, the arts ecology, in action, the fact that it's everybody from young and emerging playwrights, established playwrights, small to medium companies, major performing arts centres and a peak body like uh, Playwriting Australia all coming together to support the expression of the Australian voice in the here and now in all its diversity. You know, I, I, I can't think, in all my career, I can't think of another um, theatre project which has had the, 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 the happy collaboration of so many different organisations. And, you know, Arts Centre in Melbourne has been terrific and saying, oh, we can, we can caption the videos for you, we can edit them for you, we can, you know, and Sydney Opera House says, oh, we can, do, we can host a conversation from the stage of the Joan Sutherland season just on the theatre and put it down a digital season. All these kind of big um, centres saying, yeah, we can help by doing this, by doing this. 
And most of those organizations are going to live stream it off their Facebook pages. So there'll be a huge um, presence online. Um, I think you'll be barely be able to avoid it, I think, by the time, <laughs> by the time um, next week comes around. Now, also, the Dear Australia scripts will be published by Australian Plays, available online from Monday the 6th of July, which means that these won't just be a one-off ephemeral event happening in the internet and forgotten. The scripts will be available to be performed as monologues by actors uh, uh, after the event as well. <laughs> I, I can, I can, it's a good point you make. Um, and it's great that Australian Plays is going to publish all 50 of them, and it'll be a great document there for the written text. Um, but yes, you, you can imagine them, any number of them, being um, favourite audition pieces for years and years to come. So, it sounds like they'll have a long life, yeah. So, as we said, Dear Australia is live streaming over three nights on Thursday the 2nd of July, Friday the 3rd of July and Sunday the 5th of July on the Facebook pages of the many participating theatre companies and organisations around the country, from Brownsmart Theatre in Darwin to Blue Cow Theatre down in Perth to La Mama here in Melbourne, uh, all around the country. And... uh, for the details, go to Playwriting Australia's website, pwa.org.au, uh, because, where, where you can see a list of the plays, uh, sorry, the playwrights, the performers who are bringing them to life, and the time. So Thursday and Friday, 7pm here uh, on the East Coast, 6.30pm in Central Australia, South Australia and the NT, 5pm in WA, um, and then on uh, Sunday the 5th at 5pm here with then a, uh, a panel discussion on the Sunday night, is that right, or is that... On the Saturday. On the, on the Saturday. Saturday at Sorry, 7 o'clock Eastern seven. time. Yeah. yeah. Great. So yeah. it's not actually interrupting the plays. You can watch the plays no. Thursday and Friday, the panel discussion on Saturday, back to the plays on Sunday. David, a final question for you, and one that I've been putting to a few organisations who are streaming work online at the moment. We've been so oversaturated with digital options at the moment. Are you a little bit worried that people are kind of, I don't know, live streamed out at this point and that you won't have the national audience that you're hoping for for this event? I think we'll be fine because this is quite different to a lot of the other projects and and certainly those 25 small and medium organisations who suggest that the writers are so on top of it uh, to their their particular audiences. And some of those organisations, of course, haven't had the capacity to be be live-streaming anything at all. So, um, you know, unlike the, you know, Malthouse and so on that you mentioned there have been doing some terrific work, a lot of these smaller companies haven't had the chance to do that. So for their particular audiences, it'll be quite a new thing. I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. Having enjoyed the Abbey Theatre's Dear Island project, which I know uh, kind of helped inspire some of uh, this project, uh, so but being able to see kind of such a diversity of voices and ideas and opinions and actors. I believe there's a child actor involved, for example. Yeah. I've already mentioned Jack Thompson. So we've got kind of crossing generations, crossing uh, some of the, I guess, not just crossing the fault lines which sometimes separate this country, but trying to bring them together. Yeah, that's that, my sense. You know, I've watched the videos now in a while in the order that they'll be broadcast. And the, and the, the feeling I have um, at the end of each of the, the three um, nights is, is one of, of a genuine coming together. You know, some of the pieces are very pro- provocative, of course, rightly so. But you come out of it thinking, wow... Um, we, we we need to address things, but we also have the capacity to address them, and that's the most important thing.
Dear Australia is happening over three nights, the 2nd and the 3rd of July and the 5th of July. Go to www.pwa.org.au for a full list of playwrights involved, actors involved, and the dates and times uh, that these are being presented. I'm very much looking forward to sitting down uh, in front of my... I will have to kind of cast YouTube across to my TV so I can sit in comfort in the lounge room with a glass of wine (laughs) and watch some of these fantastic playwrights and actors presenting their work. Dear Australia is the project uh, with the the works commissioned by Playwriting Australia. David Bertolt, thank you very much for joining us on the show this morning. Great to talk to you, Richard. Thanks so much. Triple R. My final guest has joined us on the line. Leslie Harding uh, joins us from Heidi Museum of Modern Art, where she started as a curator in 2005. Now she's, uh, she's the artistic director of the place. And, uh, Leslie, you're reopening on the 30th of June. That must be rather exciting for you and all the team. Hi, Richard. Yes, it is. We're really looking forward to reopening. It's been a long few months since we closed the doors. And I can tell you it's a lot more difficult to reopen than it is to close. Um, but, no, we're super excited. To, we've got a, a new, brand-new range of exhibitions to share with our audiences, and we, we, yeah, we're itching to, to get the doors open. Now, in terms of uh, the conversations I've been having with the directors of various galleries in Melbourne and around the state... Uh, Often a few of them have talked about the fact that uh, they may have just opened an exhibition. For example, uh, uh, Louise Tegart from Art Gallery of Ballarat earlier was saying they'd literally had an exhibition open just for a handful of days before they had to close. Did Heidi have kind of uh, similar kind of ambitions and plans for shows that were just suddenly slammed shut? Look, yes, more or less, although interestingly, um, for us the timing was okay because we had just finished our exhibition of Jess Johnson and Simon Ward's show Terminus and were in the throes of installing our new exhibition, Joy Hester Remember Me, um, when we had to close. So I think we were a week down in install and we the first week of closure we completed the installation. So the exhibition's been sitting there waiting um, for the doors to open again and um, because it's a works on paper show we've got a lot of, we've been calling them pyjamas but they're essentially parcel covers to make sure that no life um, can enter um, anywhere near the the fragile works on paper so that um, so that they're in pristine condition. There's a, a certain thing that happens with works on paper um, largely. You need to rest them after a period of display and three months is really the kind of outside limit for um, having them exposed to any sort of light and of course it's, it's 50 lux is quite a low light um, but even so the prospect of um, sort of ambient light coming through was meant that we had to had to quickly sew up some co- extra covers to make sure that they were all safe during the period. I, I would imagine that walking through Heidi, uh, the, the galleries of Heidi, would have been a slightly perhaps eerie experience with everything kind of covered in, in shrouds and dusk jackets and so forth, and without the, the people who help bring those works to life by looking at them and responding to them. Yeah, it's been really strange. Obviously, we've we had migrated a lot of our staff, most of our staff actually, all but a couple, um, off site to work from home, like other institutions have done as well. Um, and I did pop in for one day a week, generally, to do some work out of the office and um, keep our facilities manager a little bit socially distant, but <laughs> keeping him company a bit. Um, and it was an extremely strange experience. Um, you know, everything's 
da, and um, he'd turned down the, the climate control in the, in the non-essential areas. So it was a very strange, spooky place, actually, without, without the staff and without the visitors. But also, uh, strange and spooky perhaps, but also so evocative at the same time, I'm sure, because given the history of Heidi, its long connection to uh, contemporary art in Australia, um, did it feel like it was almost an opportunity to give Heidi back to, I don't know, the uh, the, the, the ghosts of the reeds, for example? <laughs> well, funnily enough, funny you should say that, Richard, people have, have heard a ghost in Heidi 1, the old farmhouse on the top of the hill, and I did have a staff member work doing an archive project up there. And um, during that period, somebody reported seeing a ghost down near the river. So I don't know whether something's been disturbed by all of this changing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being flippant because there are people that, that do believe in that sort of thing. But um, no, there are meant to be some ghosts on the site. So, um, yeah, it has been a strange time. But look, that said, our gardens have been open um, throughout and particularly for local um, it's um, they've provided, a, I think, a nice uh, place of respite, and they're looking absolutely beautiful. Of course, we've had enough rain, so um, we've, we have had people in and around the, the surrounding um, the, the surrounding property. Now, in terms of the reopening uh, of Heidi Museum of Modern Art, which, as I said, is on the 30th of June, talk to us about the steps you're taking to make sure that you're meeting government guidelines around the numbers of people in the space and also how you're reassuring your visitors that it will be safe to visit Heidi. Yeah, well, we've, we've spent the last four weeks really very um, solidly working on, a, on plans and protocols for reopening um, and we've been assisted by, you know, a series of guidelines that have been issued by Public Galleries Association but also by the state government about how to handle visitors and um, record their details. So we've moved over now to um, a timed ticket entry system um, and we're encouraging all of our visitors to make a booking online prior to their visit and, of course, we um, move back to a maximum of 20 people indoors at any time. So um, those numbers have been reduced accordingly to make sure that they're closely regulated. Um, so obviously we're capturing uh, contact details which will be stored only for a short period of time, the 28 days required before they're destroyed. Um, we've got sanitizer at each um, main station um, throughout. We've got three buildings on site, so each of those um, has uh, sanitizer stations. We've got sneeze screens um, at the main reception and, um, of course, we'll be, we've got invigilators uh, making sure that we don't exceed any of the necessary numbers throughout. Um, we've also got facilities to do temperature t testing and that kind of thing. At the moment, we're not going to... Um, deploy that in terms of visitors, but we will be doing that for people like contractors who are spending any sort of long period of time on the site. Um, but there's a whole range of, of other things. We're encouraging contactless payment. Um, we're not doing cloaking, so we'd prefer that people bring the bare minimum to walk around the spaces. Um, and then there's a, a full list of the details in terms of how we're keeping our visitors and our staff and our volunteers safe um, available on our website and also on the page where you can book tickets. So that website, www.heidi.com.au. That's Heidi, H-E-I-D-E, heidi.com.au. And as you said, the exhibition Joy Hester, Remembering, uh, Remember Me, is opening from the 30th of June, running through until the 4th of October. It's a pretty significant exhibition in terms of celebrating and uh, pr presenting the work of Joy Hester. Yeah, it is. It 
It's interesting, I think, um, Richard, because she's really um, firmly part of the original Heidi Circle of Artists. And, and, uh, the other sort of famous names among them are, are people like um, Cindy Nolan, Albert Tucker, Arthur Boyd, John Percival, and then later Mercamora and Charles Blackman. And um, Hester, while she often appears in group shows and things, um, there really have only been a handful, maybe three other exhibitions of her work since she was sort of rediscovered in the 1970s and serious critical attention was paid to her work. So this is possibly the largest that has been held. We've got 144 works on display um, and an additional 20 or 30 or so um, for preparatory drawings. But I think the interesting thing about Hester and perhaps the reason why she has been um, sort of somewhat in the shadow of, of artists like Sidney Nolan is because she preferred to draw over painting and it's taken us as a society a long time to really come to terms with the fact that drawing is a, a very expressive medium, it's very immediate and and um, it also requires an enormous amount of skill, of course, because there's no going back if once you've applied some watercolour to a piece of paper. Um, and so I guess because her work hasn't been seen as quite as monumental as some of those other artists, um, she's been, as I say, somewhat in the shadows of her more famous male peers. Um, and and male an... peers in particular, I, always, I suspect there's a, a fair degree of, uh, of sexism that has meant that Joy Hester's work was not appreciated in the same way for, for several decades. Not only is she uh, kind of drawing rather than the more kind of vigorous and manly pursuit of putting kind of paint on canvas, uh, but, yeah, she was a woman amongst a large coterie of male artists. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think even, you know, the way that she practised, when she was, the artists would all, all of the male artists would have a kind of studio set up and they were painting in oil and it was a very serious business. Hester would draw as almost like a communal activity. She'd be sitting on the floor and drawing while people, you know, as part of conversation, if you like. So it was a very different kind of activity for her. And I think that probably lent some of the, you know, the, the desire to not take her quite so seriously among that immediate group even though I have to say her first husband, Albert Tucker, did a really good job of preserving and, and making sure that the drawings that she's kind of scrunched up and discarded were retained. So we can thank him for a really quite a large archive of, um, of you know, often unfinished drawings. But she only held um, a handful of exhibitions in her lifetime. She participated in a number of contemporary art society exhibitions, but her real champions were John and Sunday Reed, the, the founders of Heidi, um, and they they provided her with encouragement and um, financial support in order for her to be able to continue her practice. But, you know, it was a short life, Richard. She died when she was 40, regrettably. She died of cancer. And, um, you know, who, who knows what might have happened had she lived a long and full life. But her work was kind of repatriated, I guess, with the, the wave of um, feminist art criticism in the 1970s. But it, as I say, even since then, there's only been an, a three serious large scale exhibition celebrating her work. So this, this exhibition, which marks the 100-year anniversary of Hester's birth, seems, I think, um, very timely. So the exhibition Joy Hester Remember Me uh, opening from the 30th of June and running until the 4th of October at Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Are the other uh, kind of, are all parts of Heidi opening up to the public uh, from the 30th of June or are you doing a staggered opening to control numbers? 
no, we, yeah, we thought about that, Richard, but um, no, we've decided to open up the entire museum. It also means that people can disperse uh, across the site quite readily. We're fortunate, um, as I say, of having um, extensive grounds and beautiful gardens for people to enjoy. Um, but we have, um, in addition to the main galleries building, where there are three different exhibition spaces, um, the Albert and Barbara Tucker Gallery has got a, a, a new-ish Albert Tucker Marking the Past exhibition. Um, and then it was installed just this last week, um, a really exciting video work by Archie Barry for our project gallery, which uh, focuses on emerging artists. And then the other two buildings on the site, Heidi Modern, the beautiful modernist McGlashan building, um, which the Reeds built in the 1960s, has a really fantastic, um, very immersive installation by um, a Melbourne artist, Carolyn Eskdale, uh, called Memory Horizon. And it's a really fascinating um sort of response to sight and response to ideas like memory and sort of projecting possible futures for that building and it's very sensitive to the architecture and I think people who are interested in design and architecture will really love that show um, it really kind of sharpens your your focus on the on the very clean modernist lines and the beautiful use of materials in that building and then in Heidi One or the, uh, the Heidi Cottage which is the original farmhouse where all of the, the shenanigans happened in the 1940s um, we've got an exhibition called House of Ideas that our assistant curator Brooke Babington has, has put together and that's really I guess you could call for um, call a, the, the sort of Heidi hits it's a bit of something for everyone in that exhibition that celebrates um, all of the, the famous Heidi artists Heidi is reopening to the public on the 30th of June from Tuesdays to Sundays 10am till 5pm uh, you need to book online for a timed entry ticket so that the gallery can appropriately manage the number of visitors and you can find out all the information you need about visiting and safety uh, at heidi.com.au that's h-e-i-d-e heidi.com.au if you've not been to Heidi Museum of Modern Art before located at 7 Templestowe Road Bulleen and as I said dub 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 heidi.com.au I've been talking with its artistic director Leslie Harding. Leslie, just a final quick question before you go. Given the great pause that we've all been having, has this meant that you've had an opportunity to, I don't know, work on another book or two? Well, in theory, yes. Kendra and I've, um, my colleague Kendra Morgan, who curated the Joy Hester exhibition, which he and I've collaborated on a number of books in, in over the last, well, I guess, decade or so. So, um, the project that we had um, lined up and the thought would um, be an opposite time to uh, really get cracking on um, is a biography of Joy Hester. Um, so we've made an initial foray into it, but to be honest with you, all of the kind of arrangements that have need to needed to happen around. COVID-19 and migrating all of our staff off-site and, and dealing with all of the kind of the ever-shifting landscape that this period has been has meant that we haven't done a lot of writing, <laughs> I'm afraid to say, but I look forward to things settling down and getting a bit more back to normal and we can siphon off some, you know, a good dedicated amount of time to, to get that project up and running. Heidi turns 40 next year, so our plan was always to um, publish a book in, in celebration of Heidi's 40th birthday and Joy Hester seems um, very appropriate given that she died when she was 40. It seems very appropriate indeed. Time to get cracking on that book. I look forward to seeing it and I look forward to revisiting Heidi soon once it opens from the 30th of June. Jump online www.heidi.com.au for details. Leslie Harding, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Oh, lovely to be with you. Thanks, Richard. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 